Hey everyone, this is Brittany hopping on really quick to let you know that I was a guest on two of our friends' podcasts this week. Megan and Tim Marshall from Mmm Conversations have spun off and done their own podcasts. You can find me on Tim's podcast, Tea Time with Tim, talking about Roe v. Wade and women's rights. And you can find me on Megan's podcast, The Diaries of an Anxiety-Ridden Bell, talking about COVID-19 and its effect on mental health. You can find those, oh my gosh, you can find those shows in the show notes. Now back to our show. Hi, I'm Brittany Ross and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Flincham and I play the pipe. And together we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. Welcome to yet another episode of your favorite podcast, Fiddle and Pipe. I'm Brittany Ross. That's Catherine Flincham. Catherine. Hello. And with us, we have Wendy Tabor. It is lovely to have you on again. Always good to see you guys and talk to you guys. <laughs> we love having you on here, Wendy. I'm moderately okay with it. I know the metric system's going to come up at some point. I'm pissed. <laughs> you know the amount? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, ever since we've had this discussion about the metric system, you know how many times now I am aware of when the metric system is brought up in a book or in a TV show? But now you know how many pounds it equals. I don't understand meters. I don't understand kilograms. All I know is everything is 10. So 10 meters is 10 kilometers, is Not 10 even centimeters, close. is 10 milliliters, is 10 <laughs> cups, is 10 ounces. This is why America is extra. We are very Everything is 10. Extra. <laughs> I love how at the beginning of that, very Wendy was like... Wendy was nodding yes until I started talking more. But does anybody else use the measurements that America uses, or is it just America? Officially, Um, it's just America. Alaska, Hawaii. Those are- America. (laughs) That's America. Puerto Rico. (laughs) St. Croix. I'm very curious. Are the territories using the metric system, or do they use the American system? I've never like, been to Guam or Puerto Rico, so I can't I tell you. I wish I knew. Let's find this out. The units of measure in use in Puerto Rico are based on the United States customary units. So good. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know if South America, South and Central America, do the metric system either. Every I other country except America uses the metric system. Uh, Antarctica yeah. doesn't. Wendy. Antarctica doesn't count. Why? Are you an antarctica is? Oh are you going to go to Antarctica, Brittany? And are you yes. going to establish the American... What, what, what is the American system of measure even called? Like Imperial. America? Imperial? Yes. Imperial American? Wow, I don't remember this. <laughs> Why is Wendy That's... teaching us? <laughs> Nothing. 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 I remember, all I remember from math back in the day was how geometry was dumb and a lot of algebra. That's pretty much it. 
the only things That's I use algebra. in my job are present percentages and measurements. Literally nothing else. Did you know percentages are American? I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of American today, very patriotic of Britney after the Fourth of July. Like. America, America. Today we are doing a comparison of what some of what we believe to be some of the more prominent um, artists slash songwriters slash musicians in. Uh, American and Canadian rock and pop culture. This is going to be a debrief, I think. Just kind of a, a little debrief on them. And I think that this episode was actually Wendy's idea since we're celebrating or have celebrated a 4th of July. And then... And Canada Day. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> did you not Did you not hear me say and? <laughs> Bitch. America I was working always on it. has to go first for some reason. You know, Kool-Aid man, gotta bash through the wall. I mean, someone has to keep this train going. God damn. Y'all two can do this. I'm gonna go have a drink. <laughs> She's gonna stay day. in America and have a beer. I'll a see y'all for Twilight. American, American beer is beer. yellow piss. Just uh, Not craft beer. <laughs> Craft True. beer barely scrapes by. Like, even our craft beer, even our IPAs are stronger. I am so curious. Yeah, what's the craft beer scene like in Canada? I'm very curious. It's all liquor. <laughs> Get your butts up here. I'll show you. <laughs> we gotta go to Canada, Catherine. We need to do this episode because we got two episodes to record today. Banter, banter, banter. It's me. I need to go first. It's Miss right. Blencham. Oh, don't call me that. Is that a teacher? That. You're presenting. Oh. oh, I don't like being a teacher. <laughs> Says the teacher. Hi, welcome to your job. <laughs> hey, welcome to my job. I mean, this is kind of like my job. So, today, I will be talking about, well... What's your thesis statement? My thesis statement. <laughs> I did a lot of research, basically, like, on blues, mainly. Kind of the origins of it, and then, like, some unique facts and some notable people that came out of that genre movement, I would say, that kind of influenced a lot of people that you may recognize today. So here we go. For some of y'all that are curious about how, I guess, rock pop music came about or its origins of it, you got to like think back to what music was like in the early, early 20th century. Think like 20s, 30s, 40s. There was a lot going on. Technology is expanding. You know, we're getting the phonograph, the radio. It's becoming more of a thing. We're starting, I would say. And there's basically main three, like these three main genres that are more popular in the after World War One, early 20th century area. Some big genres of the time. The first one is the Tin Pan Alley era, which a lot of songwriters uh, and artists congregated in this one general area in New York City, uh, West 28th Street, from what I looked up, because I never knew that fact. But um, these were a lot of songwriters who were basically just trying, it was, they were just 
trying to get their music out. Sheet music was like the business there for the Tin Pan Alley era. And a lot of big bands were playing this kind of music. And it was widely accessible more for the white middle class of that time. Um, so a lot of these Tin Pan Alley songs were more popular for those kinds of audiences. Because this is also like segregation was still a thing at the time. So socially yeah. speaking, people of color, mostly blacks at the time, and then whites had very different uh, social, economical statuses and standards. And really their day-to-day -day lives were like totally different. Exactly. And so outside of the Tin Pan Alley era or genre, compared to like the other styles like country and when I'm saying country, think really rural southern country, Hank Williams, if you guys know his music, um, mm -hmm. or like western country, like cowboys, yeehaw, that kind of country <laughs> wasn't. That was all on the radio too, but it wasn't as accessible as some of the Tin Pan Alley songs. And same with blues. Blues was not really on the radio as much either compared to Tin Pan Alley because a lot of blues music was played and performed by black artists. So mm -hmm. getting into that. Blues music, the origin, this is very interesting. So blues didn't become popular until after World War One, And the origins of it, I've read some different sources. Um, so it's probably from this, I guess, style called a holler, which a lot of country black farmers would work like they would work in these hot fields and then they would just like half sing half yell like oh it's so hot outside or something like that kind of like oh i'm dreading today so this kind of style like transferred over to like what blues was down in the south mississippi delta area and a guy named wc handy went down there and he heard about like the blues and he heard people singing and he was very interested in these styles because he wasn't from the country. So he basically took like ideas from what he heard with like the vocals, the lyrics, some of the playing like in down in like, I guess like country blues is what they call it. It's very acoustic. It's one person usually, they have a guitar and they're usually just kind of singing by themselves playing like three chords over again, <laughs> over and over again. So he kind of took that style because he thought it was really interesting and he started writing blues music and it became very popular in the early 20s. If you guys recognize like Bessie Smith, she was one of the more prolific, I would say, blues singers of the early, like in the early 20s, she like made it popular. She performed some of his songs that he made, but that's kind of where blues came, like became more popular was in the early 20s. And then it kind of died off a little bit because then the big band era came in and jazz, all that stuff. So blues had a very popular like high time. And even afterwards, it was still like, there was still a lot going on with the genre in itself. So one of the most, I'm gonna say that he's prolific, but he's not as well known is Robert Johnson. What made him significant and I'll just go to his story. So he grew up very poor. Um, his mom had 10 children. Oh my either God. he's one of 10 kids, I think he's either the 10th kid or he's the 11th kid. I'm not quite sure on those details. But his mom had 10 kids. At that point, they just walk out, right? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just 
walk out. <laughs> I mean, ten kids, you know, she has more strength than I do, because I, 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 no thanks. Not, not my cup of tea. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's really hot up here. It's because you're thinking about having ten kids up there? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's not, that's not. not that's today. an army. <laughs> I don't need ten kids. I would have ten strokes. So, yeah, no. Um... <laughs> So, he was one of ten kids. Apparently, like, his mom had him out of wedlock. And, yeah, you know, poor Robert. Um, But he didn't really know his dad either. So, he didn't know, like, of his biological father until he was a lot older. His mom remarried and moved him closer to the suburbs of Memphis. So, he was a little... He was around a growing music scene in Memphis where there was a lot of... I mean... You have more people, more music is happening, just more stuff is going on. So he has a little bit of influence here. I think, like, he wasn't super, like, musically talented. I read that he played the harmonica, which I think is pretty normal for, like, kids when they're younger at the time. In the Think of, like, the 20s. I had a harmonica as a kid. I had a toy harmonica, but I didn't, like, play it. <laughs> I had a real harmonica, and I never tried to play it well. What? I just did the whole, like, put it to my mouth and, like, blowing it to get all the notes at the same time kind of thing. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. No shame. Yeah, see? That's a normal kid yeah. thing. <laughs> I don't know. I just, like, read something that, like, he played the harmonica, but there wasn't, like, anything significant. Like, oh, he was a naturally gifted kid. But he loved the blues and he tried to learn. He would go to these, like, jukebox performance. Like, I guess, like, jukebox joints is what they called it. I guess it's, like, a little place where people just perform live music and drink and stuff that's what i assumed like a bar yeah why i am overthinking things today (laughs) i'm scared you guys this is nerve-wracking he would learn like he would go to these shows a lot where there were already like well-known blues musicians of that time in that area and he would like listen to them and then during like these intermissions he would try to like learn and play guitar and like play it in front of people but he had like no skills on guitar whatsoever it's a mood. <laughs> poor guy and so he kind of just like disappears for a little bit and this is where it gets interesting because a lot of people there have been rumors that he basically disappeared and sold himself to the devil and gained these amazing guitar skills because when he came back from disappearing for a while he had a guitar, and he had these amazing blues skills, and everyone was just like, oh my god, Robert Johnson is amazing. And, yeah, everyone was like, oh, he sold his soul to the devil. And that whole rumor... Was he Paganini? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Didn't Paganini do that or something? Or that's the rumor? That's, that's what they said. Interesting. He did some yeah, kind that's... of disorder where his, like, his fingers were long. Like, longer than your average person, so he wrote really virtuosic stuff. He had hot dog fingers like Christian Grey? He had the most hot dog fingers. (laughs) (laughs) And he wrote stuff that no one else at the time could play, so they're like, well, he must have sold his soul to the devil. Except, you know, it was Italy and not Georgia, so... Well, I don't know if Robert Johnson had long hot dog fingers, but... (laughs) Not like Christian Grey. (laughs) Not like Christian Grey. Hmm. But the rumor is, is that there's this crossroad rumor has it in Mississippi, somewhere in southern Mississippi, that's um, between Highway 49 and 61. This was a crossroad where a lot of people said that people would like, you know, 
if you were there in the middle of the night, you would see this like giant figure and it would be like the devil and he would take your guitar, tune it, give it back to you, and you basically sold yourself to the devil. That's kind of what the whole myth is about. Is this a horror story now? It's a myth. It's from the night, like the 20s. What do you expect? I'm scared. <laughs> well, wah. Turn on a nightlight. <laughs> I have my light on. Find Bartok. Let him protect you. I have you. two cats Bye. with me. I took a picture so I could show both of you. I have Bartok over here and I have Vivi over here. You're just like party time. I'm living in pussy paradise right now. <laughs> pussy paradise. That's your hashtag well, for this episode. Hashtag yeah. pussy paradise. Pussy paradise. That's the title of this episode. It better be. Oh, wait. I'm the one who names the episodes. Future Brittany, remember that. Yeah, he sold his soul to the devil. That's the that's basically the whole myth. And a lot of people believed it. Even, like, I remember when I took my history of rock and roll class back in undergrad, even that story was told us. So, obviously, that wasn't the case. He actually learned guitar, most likely from a well-known blues guitarist at the time, Ike Zimmerman, or I guess he was really good. I don't think so well-known. But he basically spent a good amount of like a couple years really just working on his guitar skills and so what he did with blues in general is he kind of changed it a little bit and this is why people really love him in general or a lot of artists did is basically the blues structure is you can have like I guess like I want to call them stanzas or verses or I guess I don't know but a basic stanza or verse that you'll hear is 12 bars and it's usually an AAB format so I guess in non-musical terms for some people because I know y'all are listening what I mean by that is when you hear the opening of a blues song you'll hear the first line that's like your verse that's your A and then you'll hear it again it's repeated and that's your second A and then you'll hear a concluding I guess statement or something that's resolving that first verse that you repeated, that's your B. So that's what I mean by AAB. And again, a lot of the, I guess the tone of the blues was basically a one, four, five chord just played the entire time. So that's all you really got. There is nothing much else out there. Um, the lyrics I think were more effective along with the tonality of the one, four, five chords, because you're also flatting the third and the seventh, which adds that melancholic kind of mood. Like, I hate my life. I hate my life. I really hate my life. You know, something like that. <laughs> I'm making stuff up there. So. That was beautiful blues singing. You're welcome. <laughs> 10 out of 10, my friend. <laughs> you're welcome, world. I'm just, you know, singing the truth. Singing my blues. Anyway. <laughs> Just I kidding. guess I'm that's just why kidding. they call it the blues. <laughs> they call it the blues for a reason. <laughs> so what he did, along with that basic, like the basic stuff that makes up a blues, he added more stuff to the guitar. He had like, he did a slide guitar technique where it makes it sound like it's two guitars instead of one, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Is that the thing where they put the metal thing on like their fingers mm-hmm. and they slide it up and down the fretboard? Yep, slide it up and down. So he was doing a lot of that. Um, and you can hear it, too, if you listen to some of his recordings, because he doesn't have a lot of recordings out there. I think in total he is, like, 27 or 29. And a so couple of those are, are alternates. Exactly, yeah. And so 
But you can hear what he's doing with the slide guitar technique. I don't know how it works because I can't play guitar to save my life, but I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and he also added a little bit more riffs with the guitar as well in his songs, where in most songs of that time, that wasn't really common. And then he unfortunately died. Um, so he Rip. toured, like, he was pretty successful. I would say successful, like, as a, you know, like a gigging, hustling musician kind of standpoint. Freelancer? Yeah. He was a good freelancer. He played a lot of, like, he did a lot of gigs, performances, traveled a lot, um, did some recordings. Again, he only did, like, 29. I think I also found out, I read somewhere in a New York Times article, and I'm really pissed because I can't access it because I had too many, uh views on that article uh but apparently he made like 39 or 36 dollars in total of all his recordings which is so so low compared to our time what is that with inflation i have no clue when was this he died in 37 so it had to be like in the 30s it's about 630 dollars it's still not a lot it's not a lot but i'm sure back in those times it was something well i mean like compared to now that's 630 dollars. so that's like um oh yeah never mind i was thinking 600 dollars like in that time no if if you it wow my brain 36 dollars in 1930 is equivalent to purchasing power to about three or sorry 630 dollars and 10 cents today yeah that is not all that is not a lot of money so that's factoring in inflation Damn, yeah. He got underpaid. Way underpaid. That's for his whole life, too? I That's what I read, but, I mean, Dang, that was in an son. article I read. I don't know if that's accurate, but don't quote me on that, people. Quote her on it. <laughs> Found a New York Times article. Just look up Robert Johnson, New York Times, and you'll get it. Don't use this in your paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Yeah, he died. Um, apparently, like, it was possibly that he was poisoned. Ooh. Was it because of his $630? No, I read something that he apparently flirted with somebody who was married, and the husband was not impressed. So, that's what I read. I don't know if David would poison someone for that. Well, they say poison is traditionally a woman's weapon, so there could have been a jealous former lover, possibly? Yeah. Hmm. And so, yeah, he died. He's part of the 27 Club, if anybody is familiar with that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so he didn't really have, like, a long career. And here's the unfortunate thing. Before he died, there was a man named John Hammond. Did I get that name right? Let me check. Did I write it down? I did. There's a guy named John Hammond. He um, basically, like, tried to get Robert Johnson to perform at Carnegie Hall. So imagine what would have happened if he actually lived and went to Carnegie Hall and the amount of, like, the kind of recordings we would have gotten from there. all And maybe, like, how his life would have changed. Because he really wasn't a big, significant blue... Like, no one was like, oh, like, he's a celebrity. He was just a normal guy freelancing doing his thing and he had he did a good job in it so anyway john hammond this is a name so this is kind of why robert johnson's name got brought up is because john hammond worked i believe he worked in a studio no i'm trying to get this right john hammond 
I'm getting John Hammond from Jurassic Park. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's the guy. (laughs) It's not him. It's not him. Uh, I want to say he worked in the music industry of some sort. I'm going to be, I feel so bad. Like, I should know who he is. I just, all I know is that he introduced his music, uh, Robert Johnson's music, to Bob Dylan. Which, this was when Bob Dylan was, like, starting out, too. I guess John Hammond worked for a studio of some sort, or a label of some sort. And when he was trying to get, obviously, Robert Johnson to Carnegie Hall, that didn't work. But he knew of his music. So when Bob Dylan was doing this whole, like, you know, folk revival, because that's what he basically did back in, like, the late 50s, early 60s. Catherine, uh, you're right. It's John Hammond of Columbia Records. I got it right! I, I was like, who is this dude? <laughs> <laughs> I, I read so much, okay? Well, I mean, John Hammond of Jurassic Park is going to be more famous than John Hammond of Columbia Records. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, like, that's all I got. I was like, I don't need the old man. <laughs> I, <just> need... <laughs> I need somebody else in black and white. Because <laughs> um, I know there's a photo in black and white of this guy. So, um, what was I saying? So, John Hammond, because he also, like, signed on Bob Dylan, or was working with Bob Dylan... He introduced his music to him, and Bob Dylan basically credits Robert Johnson's music. He said, if I didn't listen to his music, there would have been a lot of lines that I wouldn't have written, a lot of music I wouldn't have written. So, I I don't know. I really love Bob Dylan. I think his music is great. I love his lyrics, so you go, Bob. I hate his voice. I know. (laughs) I know. I really like it. I don't think it's that bad. So does David. His voice is so... He's like... Folk revival. Just, like, think of that, okay? I'm over it. I'm over it. Other people that he basically also impacted, like, with guitar, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, they just liked his um, style, and they liked his vocals, too, because it was kind of like, if you listen to some of his stuff, it's kind of like shaky and like, eh, in some moments, and you'll hear it, mostly at the ends of phrases, which also kind of reminds me of Bob Dylan, so maybe that's why I really like Robert Johnson. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's basically him. So poor Robert Johnson, he didn't have a long career, but he, in some way, it was impactful for a lot of the bands that and artists that we do know today. I think it's interesting, too, because he didn't just influence, like, American rock musicians. He also influenced British musicians, too. Again, like, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones. Like, those are some big bands that kind of, or artists that also made an impact in American music. And, like, that's what I think of when I think of rock music sometimes. I don't know if you all feel the same way. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the second person, I didn't do as much heavy research on him as I did Robert Johnson, uh, but Muddy Waters is, like, a second, I would say. But he had a way bigger career than Robert Johnson, and he was more, I don't want to say mainstream, but he was just more popular. Like, he was able to be signed by Chess Records. Um, he did. He had a very musical background, too. He also played the harmonica when he was a kid. I guess the harmonica was just, like, the hot new thing in 1915. They'll think it's like a, it's cheap. It's cheap. It's, it's portable. portable. So yeah. And it's 
fairly easy to play, not necessarily well. Like, I'll keep a kid entertained. Yeah. But his real name, so his real name is McKinley Morganfield, but his grandmother called him Muddy, and he lived with her, so fair enough. I mean, he has a cool name, Muddy Waters. I wouldn't remember McKinley whatever. I don't remember the other name, <laughs> so. Thanks, Grandma. Uh, but he had a more musical background, and he he basically knew harmonica, learned guitar, and then he met Alan Lomax, who was working for the... I, I don't know. I've heard this name a million times, but he was just, like, sent down to, like, these areas in the South by the Library of Congress to record these people. Basically, he pulled a Bela Bartok. <laughs> he pulled a Bela Bartok. You know how Bartok, not your cat... Uh, my cat definitely discovered American black music, so I don't know what you're trying to say. Well, he has a black cat, too. Yeah. No, I know who you're talking about. Um, Alan Lomax. Did he work for the government? He's a musicologist. Okay. That makes more sense. But yeah, he, he basically did what Bar- Bela Bartok did when he went to Romania and, like, met all these villagers and, like, recorded Romanian like folk music it was the same thing here in the rural south he was basically trying to get these recordings of these this country blues um and so Muddy Waters met Alan Lomax they recorded a couple times together and then I guess like Muddy Waters was just like I really like hearing myself and I want to hear more of myself and see myself on jukeboxes more, which I, which when I heard he wanted to hear himself more on jukeboxes, I was like, wow, have the times changed? So that would be, wow, I want to hear myself on Spotify kind of thing, yeah. um, if you think about it. So yeah, he um, basically, he was able to be signed. Um, well, first he create, he had a little band with, along with uh, his fellow, I would say, Bandmates, little Walter Jacobs, who played the harmonica, Jimmy Rogers, who played the guitar, and baby uh, face Leroy Foster, who also did guitar and drums. And they were really successful as well in the Chicago area. So Muddy Waters was from Mississippi as well, the same area that uh, Robert Johnson grew up and lived. And then he moved up to Chicago because basically when the migration of black communities were going north, um, spreading up the Mississippi River, that's where also blues became more of an influence, if you think about it, like through Memphis, St. Louis, and then up to Chicago. Basically, Muddy Waters ended up being in Chicago, and he noticed that in the scene in Chicago, the blues scene at least, the bars were always packed full, and he couldn't get his acoustic instruments to speak out in the crowd, and he was getting really annoyed by that, so he finally bought an electric guitar. And that's the, kind of the difference with Chicago blues, is that there's more electric guitar happening, and you can definitely hear it in some Muddy Waters' um, recordings. He basically amped it up a little bit more, and yeah, he got signed by... Literally. Literally. <laughs> uh, he got an amp, and he became a little bit more successful. He got signed by Chess Records at the time. They were a small indie record label that wanted to feature, uh, at the time, blues was labeled Rhythm and Blues. Um, so they wanted Rhythm and Blues artists to be more featured on their record label. Muddy Waters was one of them. So, and his band. Uh, some famous, uh, so a famous tune of his that y'all probably know, like, is, um, you might know more the riff than the song, but the song Hoochie Coochie Man that he made, the riff at the beginning kind of sounds like, 
<laughs> so you can kind of hear how he has brought some influence to like later rock music down the road. I don't know what song I'm thinking in my head, but that's all I could hear in my head when I was listening to Hoochie Coochie Man. It's very similar. Mm-hmm. Not quite. He had another song called Rolling Stone, which, by the way, was the inspiration for the Rolling Stones name. Hmm. So he was also a big, his music, his playing was very influential to the same kind of artist, Eric Clapton, the Rolling Stones, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, the Yardbirds. So both of them, I mean, he just had a little bit more of a successful life. Muddy Water is a lot longer too. He was able to perform with some of these people that he inspired, I thought was really cool. Like apparently Eric Clapton was his best man at a wedding. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Yeah, Eric Clapton just like is a fangirl when it comes to blues artists. He's just like all over the place. But he got <laughs> to perform with some of these um artists that he inspired, which I thought was really neat. And then he he won a couple Grammys in the 70s and unfortunately passed away in 1983, but he had a great career. And I think a lot of people really loved his music and in ways, you know, were influenced by him. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because, yeah, both of these artists didn't just, like, impact, I think, American musicians. I think they also impacted, like, British rock musicians as well. And the British invasion was a big thing here. Yeah. So I just thought it was fascinating how, like, these two people just, you know, we don't really hear about them as much mainstream unless, like, I didn't know about Muddy Waters or Robert Johnson until I took my History of Rock and Roll class when... I was almost in my last year of my undergrad, and even then, it's that wasn't like a required class. It was an extra for funsies elective that you could take. Yeah, I feel like these artists from back in the day, especially like artists of color, don't get as much recognition. Wonder why that is. It's unfortunate. It's really interesting to see the thorough line. Well, talking about blues brings us to one of my people who is Elvis Presley. I compare him to rock and roll like I compare Beethoven to the romantic era of music. Beethoven single-handedly turned us from the classical era, which is uh, more Mozart and Haydn, think uh, really light, really pretty music, fairly repetitive, not that dense of works. The orchestration, the number of musicians is pretty small compared to Beethoven, who that's when you start getting a lot more musicians. He expanded the development, which again, if we're kind of referring back to what Catherine was talking when she was talking about musical forms, if we talk about sonata form a little bit, when you're listening to a symphony or a work of music in a classical sense, you have your main theme. Your A. Your theme A. And then you have your development Development section, section. which is where it takes the theme A and the theme B, which are in the exposition. So think if it's like a piece of writing, your exposition is the beginning part. And it kind of melts them together. It changes into different keys, different rhythms, different notes, spices it up. It's like when you have a really nice bite of food and you're like, oh, damn, someone put smoked paprika in this? That shit slaps. All right. So... That's what Beethoven did. He expanded the development. He made things a lot more lush and 
full of texture and he added more instruments. Like, I don't think there's a lot of brass that's used pre-Beethoven. Brass? Like, are you talking classical music? I know there's, like, some Mozart and stuff, but for, like, big woodwind and brass stuff, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. I'm thinking Corelli. <laughs> oh. thinking, like, Corelli, like, you know, remember when they used to do that thing at KSU where they would have the brass department in the student center where, like, it's splits at the top level? Like, fanfares? Yeah. yeah. I remember fanfares and stuff, but I don't think... Not used in an orchestral sense that much. Yeah. Yeah, so in the way that Beethoven single-handedly, like, changed the face and evolution of classical music, Elvis Presley basically did the same thing for rock. He he jump-started rock. He was one of the first, if not the first, uh, rock and roll musician. Elvis Presley was born on January 8th, 1936. Oh, I didn't include dates in my... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I wrote down these, like, dates, too, and I was like, oh, yeah, I should, like, say them. Did not say them. You know, sorry, guys. I, What do you expect? He was he born to to poor parents, uh, Glad- I think it's Gladys and Vernon Presley. Gladys? Gladys, maybe? That's it how you like... say it. It's Gladys, usually. I don't know. I can't read. Actually, I can't read, so. I mean, he's from Tennessee or the South, right? Somewhere in the South? If you let me finish my damn thought... <laughs> He was born in, is it Tupelo? Tupelo? Tupelo, Tupelo Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, Mississippi. Yeah, it's Gladys. She's a Gladys. Okay. All right. Okay, <laughs> well, fuck me, I guess. That's okay. You want me to send my notes to you, Catherine? You can just read it? <laughs> I just think that's a neat name, Gladys. He had a twin, by the way. I didn't know that. Who was born stillborn. An identical twin who would have been named Jesse. And for the rest of his life, Elvis had a rather complicated relationship with his mom, where his mom was super protective of him because that was her only kid. And, you know, they lost one during... I mean, he was born in the 1930s, and they're a poor white family living in a segregated black area. Like, they didn't really have any place to go for help. So maybe if she had medical attention at the time, that might have not been the case, but what are you going to do? Childbirth is a dangerous thing. He stayed in Mississippi or stayed in Tupelo for a while, but he had to move around a lot because their homes kept getting either destroyed or they would lose their home because they couldn't pay for it. His dad was kind of lazy and lived off welfare and his mom didn't work. So they didn't have much money to really do anything. Elvis got a guitar for the first time when he was like maybe eight and he (laughs) was kind of annoyed that he got a guitar because he wanted a bike or a shotgun or something as your normal country boy from the 1930s would want reminds me of the christmas story you know how he wants like the the rifle the entire time and they're like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna shoot your eye out and it's like it just reminds me of the christmas story oh (laughs) i'm gonna shoot your eye out kid here's a guitar He ended up kind of fiddling around with it, and he really liked singing. He grew up a lot with gospel music because his family, especially his mom's side of the family, was pretty devoutly religious, and growing up in primarily black community, he was exposed to a lot of what would have been seen at the time as, like, black music. 
um, a lot of the blues that Catherine was talking about. He listened to a lot of them. He listened to a lot of jazz and he loved big band music. He also listened to white country music and such. He moved to Memphis when he was 13 and he ended up being discovered by Sam Phillips who ran Sun Studios and he stayed there for a bit until he got a contract and it was bought by RCA Victor. But when he was with Sun Studios, they were like, oh man, he has a really distinctive voice. Apparently at the time, people thought that he was a black man singing. So he sang with a lot of soul, I assume. So when he went to the studios and had one recording and they're like, oh, this is pretty good. So they put it out on the radio broadcast and everyone's just like, who's that black guy that's singing? And they're like, actually, no, it's a white guy. And they're like, what? I think I remember this from the history of rock and roll, actually. There was, we, we spent a lot of time. Not on Elvis and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just briefly going over his life, he worked with, uh, Scotty Moore on guitar and Bill Black on bass, and they both brought very distinctive sounds to that ensemble. Elvis had a lot of issues with drugs, as most musicians tend Mm -hmm. to do. He got really hooked on amphetamines, started when his mom started taking them, because they just, like, gave them out willy-nilly at the time, because I think it was, like, for her dieting or something, and he's just like, oh, man, these make me feel alive, they make me feel strong, they make me feel great. (laughs) As Speed does. <laughs> that was for her dieting, you said? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Time has changed. Well, I mean, you, you don't eat as much when you're on amphetamines. Yeah. So, and then he ended up getting drafted into the military, which further worsened his drug problems because he was just surrounded by people using amphetamines. Mm-hmm. He was known as being a player and had a really hard time settling down until he married Priscilla. Um, and even after then, he pretty notoriously cheated on her. His death, he died at 42. And he died on August 6, 1777. I'm sure y'all are familiar with the whole Elvis Presley died on the toilet thing. He died at 42, and they're pretty sure that his death was a mix of a drug overdose because he had a specific condition, polypharmacy, which is the use of five or more medications daily by an individual. So he just OD'd on all these medications that he was taking. And he also had heart problems because at the end of his life, he got really fat because he led a really unhealthy lifestyle. He was not super physically active. He ate junk food a lot of junk food he loved the southern comfort food and he was on drugs and he had a lot of sex and he probably drank a lot so sex drugs and rock and roll sex drugs and rock and roll yeah that's what happens kids (laughs) don't do drugs you'll die on the toilet (laughs) so that's a brief overview of his life he is widely regarded as one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. His influence on music alone, he created the genre of rockabilly, kind of combining like Mm -hmm. hillbilly and rock and roll, which is one of the earliest rock and roll genres. It was a combination of gospel, country, blues, and R&B. It was created through him listening to all these music, all these kinds of music growing up in 
Mississippi and then growing up in Tennessee and hearing all these combinations of voice of voices and styles and for a really long time he didn't write his own music he him and his band would sing covers of like other people's music and what they would do is they would usually put a I forget the order but they would put like a black artist on one side and then a white artist on the other Mm -hmm. side of the vinyl that was very common yeah, and it kind of ostracized them a little bit because, you know, they were too black for the white people and they were too white for the black people. But he ended up combining all of these into creating rock and roll. Rockabilly alone later influenced punk music. It features a lot of slap bass, kind of fancy guitar picking, a lot of echoing and shouts. So, Catherine, what you were saying earlier about what was it, hollering? It's called, a, yeah, like a holler. Yeah, it takes a lot of that. He also was a big spokesperson for bringing black music to the main stage and to, like, the forefront of American pop culture, I guess, because he did draw a lot of his musical influence from these, I guess, black sources. He managed to get famous where previous black musicians were not able to get famous, so he was able to put that more into the minds of the American people. There are some issues that are brought up. I have seen some things. It seems to be like it's kind of going downhill, but some people have criticized him for basically abusing black people, uh, where he basically just used their music to get famous. And I mean, I'm not Elvis Presley. I'm also not black. I'm also not a historian. But from my understanding, he didn't like weaponized black music he just drew from what he was surrounded by his music also led to desegregation to an extent and civil rights some of his big singles came out a few months before the brown versus board of education he is again incorporating like black thought black culture black music more into the scene putting it more onto the main stage and he's coming from an area and not only poor Mississippi, but whole country that's filled with segregation. And he is one of the first people to like successfully fuse these together and make it very popular. He has gotten public praise from B.B. King and Little Richard about what he did for black culture and for black music. He was also seen as a huge sex symbol, which I'm sure y'all have seen pictures of like young Elvis Presley. He is hot. (laughs) Like, he is so fine. I visualize him in Hawaii with, like, a guitar. (laughs) I never found him. Like, even young Elvis Presley, he never did it for me. Really? I never thought he was, like, cute. I mean, I I knew his music from Full House because if you guys aren't familiar with the show, uh, one of the main characters that John Stamos, that is played by John Stamos, is obsessed with. Elvis Presley. And so that's all you really hear half the time when you're watching that show. I mean, it's hard not to know any of Elvis's music. Lilo and Stitch. I, I don't know. I thought I always thought he was good looking. Um, maybe back in the time, if I lived in like 1955, then yeah, maybe I would probably change my mind. Are you kidding? He has like those like dark smoldering eyes that like pompadour. It's the pompadour. It never yeah, did it for the, me. It's that. Really? Yeah. 
I don't know. He just looks like a greaser Italian, but I also married an Italian, so I guess maybe that kind of explains a lot of things. I just, like, figured he was somebody that, like, my grandma would have... <laughs> and she probably did. Probably did, you know. Because everyone's grandmother loved him. No one before, not only was he really good looking, but he was also super risque with dancing on stage. Oh, mm-hmm. It reminds me of Forrest Gump. <laughs> how he danced and how he moved, no one else before him had done that. And the thing is, is he didn't even do that intentionally. He was just a person who liked to feel the music through him. So in his first recording session, they had to place a microphone in front of him and two to the side of him to actually get his voice because he <laughs> could not stand still. And when he stands still, he couldn't do the music very well so we're like okay just move we'll fix some microphones it's fine his dancing was super risque and it would make audiences just scream and go wild um he has literally been credited for bringing sexual frenzy to pop culture in the u.s how dare he <laughs> and that's a thing he was seen so much by adults as this like dirty guy who's gonna seduce your daughter and Ugh, rock and roll, the devil. He was seen as that. He was seen as, like, a rebel without a cause. And it just made teenagers love him more. Let's go to the sock hop, kids, and dance. <laughs> Get some malts. <laughs> <laughs> malts are good, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, actually, that sounds pretty good right now. What a shank. <laughs> yeah, they're just, like, creamier milkshakes. Elvis also did a lot for toxic masculinity, He refused to kind of play the tough guy image, even though he later became the tough guy image because of his greaser look and his devil-may-care attitude and his big lifestyle. He always dressed really nice. Even as a high schooler, he made a point to buy these, like, really poppin' shirts and pants that literally no one else would wear. Uh, And he always thought he should dress nice and he loved to wear makeup so he did a lot for like male empowerment in the 1950s which was pretty pretty cool for him also like the way that he danced it was seen very feminine that was another thing that was sort of liberating in what he did some of his records uh he is the best-selling solo music artist he has the record for the most songs in the top 40 and the top 100 He has the most albums in the top 200, and he influenced so many people indirectly, so many people directly that I couldn't find it, because I'm sure they'd list every single musician in the genre of rock, but some of the people that he did influence directly that I did see were Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and Brian Adams, Mm -hmm. who you all know as the artist who wrote the soundtrack for Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron movie. Brittany's really happy about that because she really loved horses growing up. I loved that movie. <laughs> I could just like see your face light up and I'm like, it's because it's about a horse. I, I really like spirit. His influence on culture in general was he was a symbol of the American dream. He literally went from rags to riches. He was a symbol of excess and gluttony because... He got really rich and he got really fat. One influence on culture that he did have was he is the most, like, impersonized character. 
my uh, birth mother used to work with the teacher who moonlighted as an Elvis impersonator. And there was a school assembly where he literally did his Elvis impersonation in front of the entire school. I still remember this to this day. Oh, did he have like the whole like suit and then he had like the yes. like, flags at the <laughs> like connecting the arms and he's like, yeah. Yeah, he had it all. So, um, he has a spider named after him, the Paradonia Presley. I'm never going to see it. Nope. Nope. Um, I'm good. And Trump awarded him the Medal of Freedom in 2018. So, oh. that's interesting. Uh, yeah, but super influential dude. That's the end of my presentation. <laughs> Hey, you look kind of peppy. I am peppy because I just drank a cup of coffee from La Belle Rosette Espresso and Wine Bar. That's in Denver, right? Yep. We are located right across the street from the University of Denver. And do they have more than just espresso and wine? Yeah, we have breakfast burritos, paninis, pastries, teas. We have a lot. If someone was walking through Denver and let's say this person was me and let's say I wanted a panini, when is LaBelle open so I can go and get one? We are open from 7 to 5 Monday through Friday, 7 to 2 on Saturdays, 8 to 2 on Sundays. And if you use the code FPPODCAST, you'll get 15% off your order, whether you're in store or online at labellerosette.com. That's a really good deal. Totally a good deal, and it's even a better deal when you get to see moi at the store. Is that a good deal? Uh, not really, but I actually need to head to work right now because I'm gonna be late. Oh, so I'm gonna go. Go to La Belle Rosette. Go. Bye. Right now. Drop <laughs> everything. Go. I'm gonna kick this off by asking you two a question. Other than no. maple syrup, Justin Bieber, and the metric system, what do you guys think of when you think of Canadian music? <laughs> Your kick-ass recycling program. Oh, wait, about music. Yes, music. <laughs> Brian music Adams. recycling program. Avril Lavigne. Uh, Rush. Uh, oh, God. Oh, yeah, Rush. I always forget them. Shania Twain. Carly Rae Jepsen. She Justin has a Bieber. soft spot in my heart. <laughs> oh, you said no Justin Bieber. Um, That's like all the Canadians, right? Oh, wait. Who was Canadian? Oh, uh, I just played a song by her. Joni Mitchell. Well, the thesis statement of my portion of this presentation <laughs> is Canada, at its heart, is truly a talent hub. And we have our own... I would say our own way that we describe our rock. Now, I want to take you guys back to 1965. And we're going to zero in on Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now, for my less geography-inclined listeners, think of- Okay, Wendy, calling me out? That's fine. (laughs) I, I, I throw shade. I'm honest about it. No, it's okay. I was sitting here. I'm like, where is that? <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> above, like, like, Minnesota? Yeah, pretty much. Isn't all of Canada above Minnesota? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so, technically, you're not wrong. <laughs> technically, you're not wrong, Brittany. So, I'll, take, I'll take my wins. In 1965, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, 
the city, like smack dab in the middle of the prairies, has a honestly a pretty rock and music scene. And Winnipeg, Manitoba is home to the original members of the Guess Who. And I'm talking Randy Bachman, Burton Cummings, Gary Peterson, and all of them. Not the current members of the Guess Who, not the fake Guess Who, my OG boys. And not the Who. And not, not, the, who. not the Who. Other side of the pond, folks. Yeah, there is a we were we were pretty confused when we were trying to make this episode up. We were like, wait, the who is Canadian? <laughs> no. <What? laughs> so the guess who they originally started as Chad Allen and the Silvertones, and then they became Chad Allen and the Reflections, and then Chad Allen and the Expressions, and eventually to the Guess Who. Their main influence was the British invasion. Beatles were hot at the time and they listened to anything and everything they could get their hands on. But the thing about these guys at the start was they struggled to find success outside of Winnipeg just due to the outright refusal of Canadian records being played in Canada. Just think about that for a second. Were they, like, more focused on getting, like, mainstream, like, American or British? Was it because American music was better? I well, considering how American Woman is like totally like a mainstream rock and roll song in the U.S. that was written by a bunch of Prairie Boys from Manitoba, just saying, bro. Which is like <laughs> tells you how that song's about me. Dominating about me. the U.S. is <laughs> their first bite. When I say bite, meaning that somebody noticed and found them was from their cover of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates Shake It All Over back in 1965. And just due to the fact that these guys had faced so much rejection, they released it to the DJ under the name The Guess Who, with a question mark at the end. Now, my- Guess Who? Exactly. <laughs> now, I have been a fan of Randy Bachman my entire life. I, he was, I, I saw him playing in Bachman-Turner Overdrive at five years old, that was my first concert ever. I have followed this guy ever since. And he cited in his book, Stories from Beyond the Tap, as he was just being really cheeky to get back at the people who refused to play their stuff. And this is a very good example of what Canadian humor is, by the way. And this cover became a chart topper in Canada, and it made it to number 22 on the U.S. Top 100 Hits Billboard. And this is actually very significant because this was the first time a Canadian band even charted on the U.S. Top 100 Billboard ever. Wow. Oh, and this wow. is 1965? Or a little later? Yeah, it was uh, like late 60s, around 65. And this was actually... Dang. Like, this is a big deal because the guess who essentially established themselves as the first Canadian rock and roll superstars. Ever. That's late. Well, late as it may be, but then again, people still listen to the Guess Who, like, going on 60 years later. So. Oh my god, that was 60 years ago. Yeah, like, these guys are, like, the shiznit. And Chad Allen- I still think 2000 was yesterday, so. (laughs) Girl, me too. Yeah, no, same. (laughs) Same. Like, my internal calendar stops (laughs) when I was seven. (laughs) Right at 2000 and on, it's nothing. (laughs) It's just all been the same. (laughs) Like, after, like, 2014, it's like, oh, wait. 
that was 10 years ago. I can't believe that decade's over. I feel like that decade blurred all together in one year. Same. So Chad Allen left the band in 1966, and he was replaced by Burton Cummings, who was 18 years old at the time. And they embarked on their first tour in England in 67. Now, this tour ultimately was a flop. And the band ended up in a bunch of debt. And so with Randy Bachman's experience with managing finances through col- like courses at River-, River College, he was able to keep it sorted. They served for two years as the house band on CBC's program, Let's Go. So Let's Go. So they basically had a two-year paying gig, which helped them get back on their feet. Nice. Hey, do what you gotta do. For real. real. Eventually, they got a contract, and it was later on acquired from Quality Records at a measly $1,000. But the producer really believed in these guys, and he took a huge risk. It refinanced his house in order to get the money for Wheatfield Soul to be produced. And Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman, these two made musical magic. And I highly recommend you listen to No Sugar Tonight, These Eyes, because you could really hear it. And These Eyes became a top 10 hint in Canada and the US, and this record sold millions. And then in 69, Can Wheat followed, and that included Laughing and Undone, U-N-D-U-N. They were kind of trying to appeal to, like, you know, the everyman. They, they had a really strong, like, prairie following. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until 1970 when their number one all-time hit, American Woman, catapulted them to fame. Again, now, the song was about me. Oh, totally. (laughs) But here's the kicker about this song. It was an accident. A literal accident. Now, the band, the only thing that they could get straight was that they were touring in Ontario. They couldn't, they all, like, disagreed on where. Some said in, like, the Kingston area, some said in Scarborough. But at the heart of it was, Randy was just tuning his guitar and riffing, as one does. But then the string broke. And, but he released a riff that was really good, and he wanted to remember it. So he kept playing it, and the other band members listened. And Burton Cummings started improvising. And eventually, they found a kid who was trying to make a bootleg recording at the concert, and they convinced this kid to borrow his recorder so that they could get what they were, you know, playing. Some of the best that. products come out, too. It's exactly. When you just do something last minute like this. This song has been accused in the past of being an attack on the U.S. and highly chauvinistic, but that's I not I looked at the lyrics right now. I have them in front of me. <laughs> I've also like, been Ooh. looking them up because I've just been singing the chorus in my head and I'm like, I don't know the rest of the words. <laughs> <laughs> but each band member actually had a slightly different interpretation. And the one that Bachman discussed in 2014 was that it was a draft dodging song. Mm. So, during the whole hubbubaloo about Vietnam, many men ended up fleeing to Canada to dodge the draft. And the band members themselves were nearly forced into the American army while playing in North Dakota. What? That's insane. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
can't can't America just like manage our own people? But we did. That's the problem. <laughs> but the guess yeah, who ultimately had an incredible impact on Canadian music because they really shone the light on Canada as a hub for talent, not just in music, but visual artists, actors of all kinds, authors, and it also brought Winnipeg. Like I've actually been to Winnipeg. It, they brought this like tiny little city like up into the forefront of Canada. And as I said before, they were for the first Canadian band to top the American 100, like on America's Top 100 billboard. And their music is still listened to today. Burton Cummings has a theater named after him in Winnipeg. And in Toronto, they have a star on the Walk of Fame. So, like, these guys were really like the band that could, and they made themselves a success. That's pretty interesting. I didn't know Winnipeg, too, was such, like, a big music arts scene. Center. Oh, yeah. 100%. And, like, even today, the arts in Winnipeg is highly respected. My partner will tell you. And, like, one of the things that I really appreciate about being Canadian and an artist myself is the arts are far more valued here. Toronto is a huge filming hub. Vancouver is, like, home to, like, institutions built in the name of Emily Carr. And, like, the next group I will talk about in a little bit, my hometown band, my boys, are, like, officially, like, Canada's rock band. And in my personal opinion, they gave us something that is distinctly and culturally ours. But Mm -hmm. we'll get to that once we hit the 80s. I think you're next still. <laughs> so, oh, stab. I'm, yeah. I'm the only one who's got something in the 80s? Okay. I'm not until 1990. Yeah, I don't have anything in 80s. I was all in the early stuff. All right. And Kevin's like, I'm done. Time to lean back and enjoy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a grandma, so I was the grandma research in my own time. All right. Time to talk about my boys, my hometown band. So, the Tragically Hit. These guys are universally beloved across the country. And they are from my home city of Kingston. They came together in 1984. They were together for three decades up until their frontman, the legendary Gore Downey, passed away from brain cancer. They were called the most Canadian band in the world, and they are our most popular band. Does that mean they cover themselves in maple syrup? Does that mean they're proud to use the metric system, Wendy? Please don't insult the greatest band in our country. I will live and die on this hill. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking them up right now. Because I never heard them until you mentioned them. Yeah, honestly, same. I'll actually discuss that a little bit later on. So, nine of their 13 studio albums topped Canadian charts. They had 46 Juno Award nominations and 15 wins. And the Junos are essentially Canadian Grammys, if that clears anything up for you. Mm -hmm. And they're in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. They're on the Walk of Fame in Toronto. And I actually had the immense privilege of being taught by one of the designers who designed the Tragically Hips album covers back in the 90s. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I will never forget the day he actually brought in his Juno to show us. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, that was wild. Like, this is mine. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. 
So the members were Gord Downey, Rob Baker, Paul Langlois, Johnny Fay, and Gord Sinclair. Originally, they had a sax player by the name of Davis Manning, but Paul Langlois ended up replacing him. And his parents, believe it or not, actually lived across the street from my grandparents when they lived in the village of Gananoque. Small town? Yes? Yep. Like, how big is... Uh, well, I guess, like, that was a different... Like, yeah. Gananoque town. is a really tiny village about 45 minutes outside of Kingston. And for a little okay. bit of perspective, Kingston has a population of about 130,000. Okay. But okay. It's, so it's like... It's like a big city, but not like the size of Atlanta or anything. It's, it's like by no it's means like in Atlanta. City. It's like half yeah. the size of Milwaukee. Yeah, okay. something like that. I've never actually been yeah. to Milwaukee, but it it's like a, a slightly bigger Woodstock. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So colloquially, the band is known as the Hip. You say the Hip, everyone knows who you're talking. So they got their start in Kingston, and then eventually they started touring across southern Ontario, where they eventually got the attention of Jake Gould, who also eventually became the host of Canadian Idol. And Jake Gould managed the band for 20 years. And in 1996, nine years after selling their first EP with a U.S. label, they became certified double platinum after selling 200,000 copies in Canada. That's wild. They had a very distinct, like, blues rock sound with a bit of jazz in it. But the thing with the hip that made the hip so unique was their creative and collaboration process was truly a democracy. It wasn't just one person who, like, burnt themselves out writing the music and the lyrics. It truly was a team effort. And that's why they managed to stay together even though they all had their own solo projects and continued to work collaboratively. And even and Downey, to this day, is still like hailed as one of our like greatest poets of our modern times, and the Office of Official po- Poet Laureate was created in his honor because he had a great dedication to making Canada better and and wanting to promote truth and reconciliation with the First Nations, the Inuit, and the Métis people and to just generally build a better Canada. And he was also very well known for his stage presence and his really interesting costumes, and he was also notorious for ad-libbing on stage. Hmm. And one particular album that I will talk about is Road Apples, produced by Don Smith. And this one was produced down in New Orleans, and it was released in February of 1991, and it became the band's first number one album in Canada. And on that album is the song Long Time Running. It is very beautiful. And if you watch the 2018 Winter Olympics, it was the song that played during Scott Muir and Tessa Virtue's final performance. And it was in honor of Gord Downey, who had died the year previously. It is an absolutely beautiful song, and honestly, watching the two of them on ice, it gives you chills. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that song. Do you think we might have heard it? Like, was it popular in the American charts? So that's the thing about the Tragically Hip. They actually did not have much out-of-country success 
and part of that was because they had such a distinctly Canadian sound that American record labels did not like that very much, Hmm. which is honestly Hmm. a shame because they are and always will be absolutely incredible. They were even on SNL, like, what was the exact date? Because I have it. I'm on their Wikipedia page, and it says March 15th, 1995. Yep. Back in 95, they made their SNL debut, but two days later, they ended up winning Junos for Group of the Year and Entertainer of the Year. And despite the fact they were on SNL as the musical guests, they did not gain much traction in America, which was Mm. absolutely unfortunate because, like, these guys, like, kind of cemented, like, Canadian rock as it. Oh, I'm reading something that Dan Aykroyd is also from Kingston? Yeah. Which I, that, I did not know. That's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's he actually, awesome. He visits from time to time. Like, if he's in Kingston, you, like, wave to him, he'll wave back. That is so cool. Oh my god. <laughs> like, sorry, I grew up watching Coneheads. <laughs> <laughs> it says that apparently... Because of him, that's how they got onto SNL or something. Well, you gotta use your connections, right? For real. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) And on that performance, they performed a couple songs from their Day for Night album, Grace 2, which is a beautiful song and nautical disaster. You'll find some nautical themes throughout their music. That's just kind of how they ruled. (laughs) 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 I mean, what can you do? (laughs) <laughs> nautical themes i'm thinking like spongebob <laughs> <laughs> but they were also just like incredibly talented musicians they were also very intelligent people they were also big proponents of marijuana legalization in may 2017 Catherine's like all right <laughs> <laughs> i i approve of this message <laughs> And this is one of the things that the hip believed in. So they entered into an investment and marketing partnership with New Strike Brands, which was a producer of medical marijuana. And in January of 2018, they also helped finance New Strike's acquisition of Canymed Therapeutics, a licensed marijuana producer. And the band share in the company is estimated to be worth $39 million. That's a lot of money. Wow, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that Canadian dollars or American dollars? Canadian dollars. So that's even more oh. because it's a lot. Oh no, wait, it's um, a lot of money. <laughs> it's it's a lot. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's less to us. Oh, it's less to us. But it's still a lot of money, my friends. <laughs> Are you converting it? Uh huh. <laughs> Another thing that Gord Downey was a particularly passionate believer in was charity work. So he was a part of, he was one half of the Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund. And the purpose of this fund is to help build cultural understanding and create a path of reconciliation towards the indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. And he discovered the story of a young boy who escaped from one, from a residential school. His name was Cheney Wendak. He was the only one out of a small group of children. I see a, I see a hand. Brittany, tell it's, me. It's about 23 million for us, Catherine. 
Still a lot. Still a lot. It's <laughs> still a lot. Like, give me 23 million, please. I mean, I will still take it, so. I'll take it, too. I could pay off my mortgage like that. <laughs> and have more True. to spare. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Wendy, keep going. And Chady Wedjack was the only one that, out of all these kids from the residential school, to successfully escape, but he eventually succumbed to exposure and died of and starvation as well. And when Gordami discovered this story, he absolutely fell in love with this little boy. And he teamed up with a group of people, including a couple of his brothers, to create a short film telling the story. And the fund became a thing. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about this band is not only did they give Canada something distinct to call our own, but they also believed in doing the right thing and using their platform for good. And I am honestly very proud to call these guys my hometown band. I've been a lifelong fan. And when I lived in Georgia, they kept me, like, close to home because I was prone to homesickness, like, all the frickin' time. So Mm -hmm. if you ever heard me blasting, like, music at work or, like, sharing the songs with my friends, it was just, like, my way of keeping home close to my heart. And their final Mm -hmm. concert was, like, their final performance was at the K-Rock Center, which is now called the Leon Center. Mm -hmm in Kingston on August 20th in 2016 and it was broadcast live without commercial breaks on CBC television, CBC Radio 1, Radio 2, and CBC Music and many venues all across the country hosted screenings for this concert to raise money for the Gordani Fund for Brain Cancer Research and it became a national event and it was attended by Justin Trudeau viewed by 11.7 million people and for a little bit of perspective that's like 33 or so percent of canada and Mm. with four million alone tuning into the tv broadcast so Mm. like this was a national event i was living in brampton at the time and i watched the entire thing because i could not be in kingston for the concert and there were aerial shots of people massing in Springer Market Square with the huge screen because K-Rock Center was full to the brim, Springer Market Square was full to the brim, and if you were to one of those two places, you were at home watching it on TV. Like, these guys, like, they're our boys. We love them dearly. <laughs> yeah. I feel like some of the artists that we've been talking about so far, you know, like Elvis, you know, doing drugs, <laughs> letting fame, like, you know, kind of, I guess, like, hit him. But it, it's like these guys are more chill. Grounded? Ground, Yeah, grounded, and they care, and they, like, want to be a part and take care of the community that they're a part of. and Exactly. I like that. It's so well, actually, Elvis did that a lot too. Elvis was actually really famous for not having a lot of money when he died because he gave most of it okay. away. I think, like, I think I'm just thinking, like, you know, 
a lot of like rock like he did, even he did like the sex drugs and rock and roll thing. I, i'm thinking more like the sex drugs and rock and roll thing like you're not saying that elvis never did charity perk or other artists <laughs> because like if you think about it like a lot of rock artists too in general you see that a lot more that's something i've always appreciated about the hip because even though they are filthy stinking rich they did not let the money and the fame get to their heads in fact Mm-hmm. Like, they still have their houses in Kingston, and you can drive by them to see them. They're not mega opulent mansions. They're just, you know, mostly heritage homes in the city. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Like, that's nice. why I've always loved these guys, is because they were grounded. And they put out some absolutely rockin' music. Alright, so we're gonna scoot on back over to Marka. Uh, for some good old Nirvana. So, a little different from the 1980s, we kind of enter into the 1990s grunge scene, which Nirvana was definitely at the forefront of that. Nirvana was active from 1987 to 1994, which I, when I was doing some research on them, I was really surprised on how short their stint was. Obviously, Kurt Cobain's suicide really kind of shortened their thing but it's just interesting that they were so influential and were only around for seven years um and they really didn't gain too much popularity until 1990 they are viewed as a figurehead figurehead band of gen x the members obviously everyone knows kurt cobain um christ i'm probably gonna pronounce his last name wrong nov novel slept is their bassist. Aaron Burkhard started with them on drums, but after their first EP, they picked up Dave Grohl, who is currently the frontman vocalist for the Foo Fighters. Nirvana had a pretty rocky history. Honestly, like their history itself, like their bio is not, in my opinion, super notable. They were... A huge part of the Seattle grunge scene. Um, they had their first album, Bleach, which the first drummer was on, and then they kicked him off and got Dave Grohl. Really, the biggest thing with them is their cultural and musical uh, influence later on. So, a lot, obviously, a lot in society has been affected by Kurt Cobain's actual suicide. Um, that was caused a lot by his depression. He had a lot of mental health issues that he didn't unfortunately fix. Um, he was in a marriage with Courtney Love and they were both heroin addicts, which is not the most healthy environment to be in, in general, and just not when you're unhappy. Kurt wanted to be, just wanted to make music for the sake of music, and he had a really hard time dealing with fame. He had a lot of health problems, like stomach problems. Um, There was a huge thing, and there's still people who, like, believe this and will look into this, that say Kurt Cobain's death was not suicide, that he was shot by someone else. Most notably, people say his ex-wife. So that's an interesting little side story if you ever want to... I've never heard that before. That's interesting. He was found with a lot of drugs in his system, and basically... I'll put a content warning, but he was found with 
like a shotgun aimed up to his head and his head blown out. And they were saying that for him to be loaded up on the amount of drugs that he had and to like aim the shotgun right and do it properly. Um, he was also in and out of rehabilitation centers for a month or two leading up to his suicide because of drug overdoses. And he was very, very, very unhappy in his marriage. And he was not happy with the direction that Nirvana was going in because they were getting too famous for his comfort levels. Um, the last podcast on the left did a nice series on the death of Kurt Cobain. We're basically at the end of the decided it was a suicide, but it's like a three-part series where they look into why some people think that Courtney Love might have killed him instead. Yeah, I never heard of this ever, mm-hmm. like, popping up in anything I've heard about Kurt Cobain's death. Po- like, a conspiracy theory, like, that she did it. Yeah. It's interesting. But also, like, it kind of makes me sad because, like, he didn't get help for some of, like, these things that are definitely, like, you can definitely get help today. Like, yeah. For, like, I-, I mean, it just makes me sad that how accessible mental health resources were back in the 90s yeah mental health is definitely viewed a lot differently now and after he died dave grohl founded the foo fighters and then he was gonna ask chris to join the band but then they decided that it would just be too weird for them to work together again um so chris actually went into politics and he still plays bass but and then dave grohl is with the foo fighters and doing his thing from music to politics is like a complete shift yeah, it really is. Arnold Schwarzenegger not... did it. <laughs> oh, oh well, yeah, he's acting to politics. Yeah. Did, did someone else do that too? Ronald Donald Reagan? Trump. Ronald Reagan did that. Donald. Yeah, but he's also like a business guy. I oh, only he... consider him a. Well, he went from celebrity to politics, I guess. Yeah. So, they started out with Chris. And Kurt trying to do, we're going to see another thorough line here, a Credence Clearwater Revival tribute band. Hmm. Credence Clearwater Revival, one of their biggest influences was Elvis Presley. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. there's like a nice little thorough line for that. They were a three-man band. They tried to be a four-man band um, between their first album, Bleach, and then their second album, which is the big one that everyone knows, Nevermind. But something happened. I think their their second guitarist was, like, super aggressive, and they wanted to go on tour, and they just really didn't like working with him, so they just kind of, like, left him. <laughs> uh, so they just remained a three-man band. Kurt Cobain does a lot of rhythmic-style guitar work, and he doesn't really have your typical guitar solos, and a lot of his solos are blues-style, which I thought was interesting. Uh, they have a lot of pseudo-dynamics, um, which you can hear a lot, especially think of Smells Like Teen Spirit. This, like, you have your quiet section, your loud chorus, your screaming chorus, your quiet section, your loud. Uh, they mm-hmm. have a lot of bass and drum grooves, so Kurt doesn't play the guitar a whole ton when he sings. Grunge was not only highly influential in the 90s and early 2000s, because you think you have, like, Nirvana, you have Pearl Jam... You have, let's see, other one, Soundgarden. You have, like, these big grunge bands that kind of came out of that Pacific Northwest scene. Grunge also led to 
punk in the sense that they have a lot of the same dynamic shifts and think think of like mainstream punk like we're not really talking about like the clash and the sex pistols because that was earlier but we're talking more of the pop punk that's gonna follow later like are you thinking uh punk 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 i'm thinking uh uh like green day um my chemical romance fallout boy i just listened to a playlist if y'all are ever interested on spotify that has a bunch of those songs from those bands called <laughs> songs i put on my myspace and there's I a love picture it. of tom on the icon <laughs> i love it <laughs> if you ever are curious i'm curious yeah i've been running to that lately <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest things that nirvana did is that they brought the the concept of alternative music to the mainstream kind of before nirvana Think about, like, the popular music of the 80s was big into, like, glam rock, big hair. It's a huge change from pop of the 80s to grunge of the 90s. A lot less happy, a lot more relatable to people. You have a lot more feelings of, like, alienation, frustration, and anger that people are going to feel in the 90s. Think of what else is happening in the 90s. You have the first Iraq war, the Gulf Mm -hmm. War. World events were starting to get really weird in the Middle East. The 80s was a time of an economic boom. The 90s, not so much. You have all these factors that are playing into the mindset of the everyday American and the everyday person. So Nirvana seemed like a much more relatable approach, which record labels actually didn't want to pick them up at first because they didn't sound like anything that they had heard previously. Um, They were picked up by by an indie label, and then they were bought out by a bigger company when everyone kind of slowly realized that's the direction that music was heading. And that's why their first album is pretty not that popular. And then you're kind of think of Nirvana, you think of Nevermind. Yeah, because that's, I feel like that's more played. They're considered the voice of a generation. They are one of the best-selling bands in the world. They have 10 top 40s and five of them are, were number ones. Um, Nevermind is one of the best-selling albums, and Smells Like Teen Spirit is one of the best-selling singles. One of the things that I thought was interesting is one of their big influences on society is that Kurt Cobain was pretty openly a feminist, and he was the first uh, well-known male figure in pop culture who actually identified as a feminist, and he publicly openly mocked sexist and racist in his audiences. So he made a lot of progressive attitudes. Think of like, in our day and age, like LGBTQ stuff, um, views towards women, et cetera, et cetera. Cool in a scene that was, you know, pretty misogynistic. Think of like hair metal, the eighties. How much of that is like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, fuck women, get blowjobs. Basically. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I love so I love some of the music of the '80s, but it, definitely that mindset drastically shifted going into the '90s, and he was a big uh, proponent of that, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know, but yeah, that's really all I had. I was a little disappointed in what I mostly read of them, at least what I thought was appropriate for our more condensed episode. I didn't really have too much exciting of like their actual band ship to bring up it's more like their lasting influence that i thought was 
interesting. Also, it's interesting that they're more relevant, I feel like, than a lot of bands that came before. Like, you still see Mm -hmm. a lot of people wearing Nirvana shirts. And you don't see a lot of people wearing, like, bands of, like, the 80s shirts. Or, like, 60s or 70s. I had a Kiss shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Kiss live, like, a year ago. That's why I have one of their shirts. (laughs) They put on a hell of a show. I was watching 70-year-old men walk around in shoes that I couldn't walk in. I was like, okay. Are they still wearing their makeup, too? Oh, yeah. that's so cool. It's so funny. I love it. Just, yeah. like, imagining Gene Simmons stuff. They definitely don't move as much as they did back in, you know, their heyday. But they, they still do quite a bit. Good for like them. Like, they walk around. They climb things. They Is it Paul Stanley? He mm-hmm. got up on the, the thing and, like, like flew out to the middle of the crowd on, like, an island and sang on that for a bit. I mean, they're they're doing a bit for being in their 70s. Probably work out, go to the doctor and get, like, special vitamins. Or they're just not going to stop until they die. <laughs> they're never going to. People <laughs> never stop. <laughs> yeah, but that's all I really have on Nirvana. I thought just their lasting legacy was pretty cool for a band that hasn't been around that or wasn't around that long. But a good amount of artists have not lived long and have made some significant establishment music. I think Jimi Hendrix, he wasn't around long. True. Yeah. I'm going to take you guys back up to the Great White North to Ajax, Ontario, 1966. Well, not 66, 96. Time has no meaning. Anywho. <laughs> so, Time's a flat circle. <laughs> time is a flat circle. So anyway. <laughs> 96, Grunge Movement, Ajax, Ontario, which is close to Toronto, again, for my less geography-inclined friends. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sum 41. They started performing together while still in high school. And it seems like when you read about them on their website that they were instantaneously successful, which is wild. And their introductory record... Half Hour of Power sold 50,000 copies, which in Canada led them to be certified gold. Like, Mm. from their first album. And that album established Sum 41 as a band that could effectively mix pop punk with rock and heavy metal and rap. I honestly consider these guys like genre vendors, like right from the get-go at the end of the day. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, they also got a Juno Award nomination for Best New Group. That's a pretty great start, don't you think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of their other albums, All Killer, No Filler, with the songs In Too Deep and Fat Lip, cemented them as a video-friendly band, and that also led them to two more Juno Award nominations and another win. Now... Something to bear in mind is when I say video friendly, we're talking about like when MTV was actually good, you know, with actual music videos, my friends. Back in the day. (laughs) Real, real music. What? I know, right? (laughs) How? 
But Sub-41 has had a pretty interesting career, and these guys really did do the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. In fact, their more destructive tendencies were actively encouraged by their label. So they wreaked havoc, naturally. They also had some other interesting mishaps. Like, you know how I mentioned that the OG members of the Guess Who almost got, like, forced into the American army? Well, in... (sighs) 2004, they put out an album called Chuck, which was titled in honor of Canadian peacekeeper Chuck Peltier. And Chuck Peltier was instrumental in evacuating some 41 when they were in the Democratic Republic of Congo with the War Child charity, and they ended up getting caught in a gun battle. What? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. And and this... (laughs) adventure resulted in a documentary called rock sub 41 in the congo and it showed the effects of the of the country's longest standing civil war but it also showed like more breadth and depth of the band than in previous records where Mm. they also introduced cello piano and acoustic guitar to their repertoire which is pretty cool and some notable singles from there were were all to blame some say no reason in pieces and that was also a number one rock radio hit in canada and the album reached number two on the sales chart and it also got the another best group juno award nomination and chuck won the 2005 juno for best rock album and uh, they got certified double platinum in canada platinum in japan and gold in the u.s and indonesia Hmm. Like, that's hmm. saying something for that's these pretty guys. Good. Yeah. And the, something to also know about Sum 41 is, well, they, they also had music that was inspired by their roots. Like, their first song that they wrote together was called Five Grind, inspired by a security guard who was known for hassling the band while they were just trying to skateboard. <laughs> I'm gonna write a song about you, man. <laughs> skateboard and skate park. <laughs> yeah, Actually, basically. Yeah, I wish I could skate. I would have written a song too. <laughs> Me too, man. <laughs> Did they meet Avril Lavigne at the skate park? Cause she. No, are but they... are they the skater boys that she was talking about? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. But Avril Lavigne was from a place called Mappanee, which is just forty-five minutes outside of Kingston. That doesn't sound oh. like a real place. I've been there. I can confirm it is a real place, Brittany. <laughs> it's a real place. <laughs> was she there when you saw when you went there? No, but um, the pizza place that she used to hang out at is still around. And the owner of the place, for the longest time, used the fact that Avril Lavigne would eat there as his main form of advertising. My uncle, bless smart. his heart. That's smart. Yeah, it's smart, but my uncle, bless his heart, said his pizza was shite. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Avril Lavigne used to eat my pizza. <laughs> yeah. But, so, some 41, all in all... They helped define the subgenre of pop rock for Canada. And we all know about Derek Whibley's marriage to Avril Lavigne, but what I find funnier than 
like Canada's pop princess and the book the the lead for some forty one marrying was at a party. A Halloween oh. party when Avril was I think she was still with Chad Kroger at the time. Derek and one of his bandmates decided to dress as Avril Levine and Chad Kroger to troll the crap out of them at a Halloween party. <laughs> Derek went That's as funny. Avril. One of his bandmates went as Chad. <laughs> That's funny. So, he was a skater boy. <laughs> <laughs> and Avril said, see you later, boy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Chad was into the costumes. He thought it was hilarious. Hmm. That's funny. I like that. And they're, like, really nice about it. They're not mad or anything. They were nice about it, which was cool. Less awkward at a Halloween party. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, despite Derek Wibley's whole sex, drug, and rock and roll thing, he actually got sober, got his act together. And some 41 has gone through some changes, but now, this year, they are on tour. They announced a U.S. tour with Simple Plan called the Blame Canada Tour. I think Brittany would get a kick out of that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Blame Canada. Wait, is Simple Plan Canadian? Oh, yeah. They're French-Canadian. Oh, okay. That's funny. Because for a second I was just like, wait, I didn't know Simple Plan was Canadian either. Yep. And their music is very much like some 41. Mm -hmm. So sense it makes sense they would collab and the tour is set to run from april to august so if you're lucky you can still catch them and on march 23rd of this year they announced that they'll be doing their eighth studio album which is set to be a double called heaven and hell heaven will be much like the pop punk that they used to do while hell is focusing on more of who they are now with the heavier metal sound interesting yeah and something distinctly Canadian, just for your learn more about Canada, is some 41 fans are also known as the goons. You know how, like, Mariah Carey calls her, fan, her fans lambs? Well, goons is also the hockey player term for the big guys who act as the enforcer. You know, the guys who beat the shit out of people. Ah, mm. I know. Yeah. In hockey, yes, I can understand that. Kevin's <laughs> been really into hockey. <laughs> hey, the Avs won, so thank thank God. It, you gotta thank the Avs for that, because <laughs> if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have watched hockey. <laughs> it's really fun to watch. Oh, hell yeah. It was fun to watch. I should take you to an NHL game one of these days. <laughs> Wait, what game? NHL. National Hockey League. Oh, and Nash. Oh, I thought. Really, Catherine? <laughs> I thought you meant N, like not N, the letter N, but A N. No. National Hockey League. I thought you meant like an H L, and I was sitting there like, "What's an H L?" <laughs> this is what hearing loss does to you, people. You can't pronounce your words. <laughs> well, I don't know about y'all, but I feel like I learned a lot of music stuff. And I guess Canada is cool. I mean, America's still number one in my heart. (laughs) Okay, in your heart, that's cool. Catherine, where do you stand? What country? I like both countries. Put me in Switzerland. Catherine, no, you gotta pick one. For neutral. 
I'm neutral in Switzerland. I just, I belong there. <laughs> well, they got great chocolate. <laughs> and cheese, so. <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you would like to plug? If you want to look at some pretty cool photography, check me out on Instagram at Designer with Fire, and support your deaf and hard of hearing mm-hmm. content creators. Like Wendy. Mm-hmm. And if you want to yeah. find us on Instagram, you can find Catherine at Cat Flinch Flute. You can find myself at BM Ross Music. You can find the podcast at Fiddle and Pipe. If Instagram's not really your thing, we also have a Facebook group, which is Face, Face- which is Facebook. Fiddle and Pipe Forum. Thank you. It's Facebook. <laughs> I always trip up on that. I don't know why. Every time. Your face is on a book online. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fiddleandpipe. We have bloopers and outtakes from every episode. And we have a happy hour podcast. And we're going to shortly be releasing new books there as well. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to buy books we're currently reading about Christian Gray's sausage or hot dog fingers, not sausage. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're reading about his hot dog fingers and how very twilight paralleling this book is. It's something else. There's a lot of mouth looking. That's what I'm noticing <laughs> lately. In the book. Okay. Um And if you guys are not able to support us on Patreon, we totally understand. Um, Prices are rising. Gas sucks. Inflation sucks. Yay, inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we totally understand, so if you could happily please rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're able to. We definitely know that you're busy and that... And Spotify. Um, we know that you're busy and that you really just want to rate and be done with it and not write anything. But we would really love to know what you think about the podcast, what you, what books you um, have enjoyed so far that we've read and discussed, what topics we've talked about outside of our books that you like, and what would you like to hear from us? Um, is there anything that you want to know, like want us to read or cover? Let us know. That's yeah. for free. And if you can share our podcast to your friends, we'd also really appreciate that. That's very free, too. I think that's it. Yes? Yes. Yes. All right. We did a lot of talking. We did so much talking. All right. Well, it was lovely seeing you, Wendy, and it was lovely having everyone listen to us, and we will see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.